The reading is from Ezekiel 47, verses 1 to 12. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me round the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with the measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish, because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore. From Engedi to Eneglaim, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish in the Great Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. This is God's word. Great. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for reading. And can I just say what a huge encouragement it's been for me to be here this weekend. It feels a bit of a treat to come to someone else's birthday party. Um, (laughs) But it has been a real joy to uh, meet people and to have conversations and to see God at work. And one of the great things about, I find, visiting other places, you realize it's the same God and the same gospel. And he does what he says. And uh, it's been a great encouragement. So... um, Uh, Be assured, uh, not only of my appreciation of thanks, but ongoing prayers uh, for you as uh, we go back to different parts of the harvest field to do the same work. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you again for your faithfulness. And we thank you for your patience, your patience with us when we can be slow to learn, easily to forget your promises. We humbly bow again before you, before your throne. And we ask that as, you, as we open your word, you would teach us by your spirit, that you would shape and change our minds, and that as our minds are changed, so our lives would be increasingly conformed to the likeness of your son. And looking forward to his return, would live to bring you glory in your world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well... You probably have, I hope, remembered something of where we've got to, and perhaps, I hope, gained a bit of a desire to have a look through all of Ezekiel to see that unfolding picture of what God said to his people in the 6th century BC. We've been reminded with Ezekiel of the majesty of the God who speaks. We've been reminded, too, of the reality of the God who judges And we've been reminded, as we looked earlier at Ezekiel 34, of the promise of the God who rescues. 
And those are great and glorious gospel truths. But if you are like me, it is remarkably easy to be discouraged. It's remarkably easy to forget God's truths, particularly as we go away from a weekend like this, where, again, if you're like me, you've not listened to the news since Friday, don't know what's going on in the world, it feels like a bit of a bubble, and we'll hit reality. We'll go back to work, we'll go back to families, we'll go back to people who are not Christians, we'll go back to situations where if we talk about Jesus, people will look at us in strange ways. We'll go back, if we ever read the Church of England press, thinking, what's going on? We'll go back to difficult situations, and sometimes it can be hard to keep holding on, to keep holding on to the promise-keeping, speaking God. We know it from our own experience, don't we, that many people we know, perhaps from camps or things in the past, who professed faith, drifted and changed. And we know the Lord Jesus said that that's going to happen, that although the parable of the soil or the soils, three quarters have a positive response, yes, for Jesus. There's only one quarter that went on to bear fruit, that kept going in the light of his promises in the midst of the difficulty of the world and of false teaching that was going around. And we can begin to wonder, therefore, whether this God really is all-powerful, whether he really is a promise-keeping God who not only acts in the present but also promises for the future. And that is why we need the last few chapters of Ezekiel. After the disaster of the exile, which we saw this morning, that report, the city has fallen, God begins his promise of rescue. There is great hope and certainty. And you will know as you go along from there, golden purple passages like Ezekiel 37. The wonderful promise that God himself, of course, will resurrect a people. And not only, but we find in that chapter, he'll also reunite a people. That would have been a shock because they had been split for years and years and years. He'd create a new people, resurrected with his spirit. Dead bones will live. A destroyed nation will be resurrected. And according to that chapter, that will have an impact on the whole world, which was originally God's intention for his people. From Ezekiel 37, the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is within them forever. But if we want to know what that looks like, if we want to know what the future is going to bring, what the promises will look like when they're realized, what transformation is going to look like, then really what we need are chapters 38 to 48. Because they present us with a picture of that future restoration. Let me briefly show you how they work before we focus on one part. Initially, the nations are addressed uh, in the form of Gog and Magog, representative of what God says sovereignly to the world. That's important because if you study Ezekiel as a whole, you'll realize that although Israel are called to be a light to the nations, a vehicle of God's salvation, they are disobedient and God uses the nations to judge them. In the gap that we didn't look at this morning between the announcements in Chapter 24 and 33. In that gap, God says he's going to judge all the nations. He will judge the nations he's used to judge Israel. But God's purposes and plans were always for a world. And so in this picture of restoration in 38 to 48, he first addresses Gog and Magog, representative of the nations. And then he focuses on his people. I put in the notes there a little summary of the different sections. 
from chapter 40, verse 1 to 43, verse 12, he tells us the presence of God will return. That's important because God's glory had left the temple. He then tells us that the worship of God will be restored from chapter 43, 13 to 46, 24. The systems of Old Testament worship will, as it were, come back and be better and different. And then he says how all the promises of God, of land, of blessings, of descendants, will be restored in the final chapters. And all the focus of these chapters is not on the present, but primarily on the future. And that's really, really important for you and me. Because whilst we have many blessings now, the purposes and promises of God biblically are for the future. The end point of history is the new heaven and the new earth. The end point of history is a church gathered around the throne in the new creation, praising God and the Lamb for all eternity. It's a future promise. And we see that when we look at the New Testament, don't we? Remember what uh, the writer to the Hebrews says to those he's writing to who were experiencing a lot of persecution and difficulty in similar ways. And he says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's in the future. Or again, Peter, when he's writing to a scattered elect who are persecuted and suffering. They're strangers in the world, like you and me, going back to work on Monday. And he says, In your heart set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. I think it's got all sorts of implications, which I haven't got time to um, unpack now. But in our evangelism, if we promise the wrong things to people now, they're only going to be disappointed, aren't they? Ultimately, whilst we have much now in Christ... We're part of a people, forgiven sins, new life. The Spirit as a, not only a deposit of what is to come, but equipping us to live now. Our focus is on the future. On a new heaven and a new earth. So faith and trust are ultimately not now, but for then. And with that in mind, which is all what this section is about, we're going to focus on just part of it. On chapter 47, verses 1 to 12. And on the surface of it, it's just a slightly bizarre description of a river. That's it. It's one of those quiet time problems, isn't it? It's a bit of a knot. Let's jump over it. I've read it. I've ticked it. I've read my Bible. What's going on? Well, it can be helpful to think about things in terms of the river's origin and the river's function. And if we understand that, it will give us more security for the future. Security in the God who renews and the God who will keep his promise. So let's look first at the origin of the river, which gives us reason to be sure to know that what God promised will happen, the origin of the river. Look at chapter 47, and I'll read again verses 1 to 6. It's a vision, as we've seen throughout Ezekiel. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, that's a renewed temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, under the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me round the outside to the outer gate facing east. And water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cupids. And he led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. 
He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to my waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you see this? Now remember what had happened if you trace through Ezekiel. The people had presumed all would be well because God was in his temple. The glory of God had come in his temple. 1 Kings 8 and he was there. We're okay because we've got a land. We've got a king. We've got promises. We've got blessings. We've got a temple. All is okay. But the shock, as we've seen, is that's all removed. And in Ezekiel, the glory of God in this vision departs the temple. And the temple is destroyed. It's deeply, deeply shocking. But in this picture of renewal, of what will happen in the future... God's glory returns to the temple. And if you have a look back a few chapters at chapter 43, verse 7, you will see what God says when his glory returns to the temple. Chapter 43, verse 7. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and their lifeless idols of their kings at the high places. Now this is the place of my throne. I have come back. And once he's come back, that picture of a renewed temple has a door that is shut so that God can't leave. So chapter 42, as it's being described over a chapter, chapter 42, verse 2. The Lord said to me, this gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. You see, this renewed temple, this picture of God's glory having come back is now certain. The door is shut. God is not going to leave. And it's from that place, the temple, where God's throne is. That this picture of total security flows. Secure because God is there and the door is shut. And a river that produces life. In fact, in our reading from chapter 47, we read in verse 12. That fruit trees of all kinds will grow on banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither nor fruit fail. Every month they will bear. Why? Because water... From the sanctuary flows to them. It's because of God's presence, God's return, that actually what he promises will happen. And strangely in this picture, that's what's going on. The origin of the river means that there will be this promised change. There will be life because of where it comes from. And this isn't just about a restored land or a restored people. It's not just about the hope of Israel coming from Babylon back to the promised land. This is about God bringing a cosmic change. This picture is something which affects Israel and affects the whole world. This is about something God will do and can be totally unshaken because the door is shut. His promises are secure. It will happen. Now when it was written, it hadn't. And there's lots of situations in life, isn't there, where in the midst of disaster, a promised rescue has no certainty. You don't absolutely know it's going to happen. 
If someone phones an ambulance, the ambulance should come, but it might be delayed. There are lots in the news about that recently. It's not guaranteed. Uh, my uh, daughter recently bought me the DVD of the film Everest. And that's a really moving film about that terrible ascent in 1996. And the film centers on someone called Rob Hall, who's leader of Adventure Consultants. A lovely man who has ascended twice. And on this third time, because of the party and the way things happened and the number of groups on the mountain, things were delayed and things began to go wrong. And he was looking after someone. And because he was looking after someone, he ended up compromising his own life. And he ended up dying. He's still there on Everest. And as the film plays out this plot, it's deeply moving. Because you know, or if you know that that's what happened before you see the film, that help wasn't coming. And on the phone as he speaks to his wife, there is hope. As they're down at base camp, there is hope. Could help be coming. But there's no guarantee. And because there was no guarantee, he died. And, you know, we can be tempted to think like that, can't we? Because we're not in the new heaven, the new earth. We haven't got the fullness of the rescue that has been promised. And we can begin to say, well, will it be like Rob Hall on Everest? Will we be hoping for the best, but never quite knowing? Are we sure we can trust God? As it gets tougher to be a Christian in the West, can we trust God? As the storm gets bigger, as the waves get higher, can we hang on? Is it just pie in the sky? Have we bought into something that is really real? Well, the answer to Ezekiel is yes, we can, absolutely. It can all go wrong. We can be like Paul in prison when saying, all of Asia deserted me. We can be like Jesus in John 6, who goes from thousands down to a few and says, are you going to go too? Where do we go to? You've got the words of eternal life. It can be very, very, very tough. We can have the highs, we can have the lows. We've heard of some of them in your own experience. But it can get very, very bad. Will God keep his promise, the promise we've seen? Yeah, it will. He will keep them. And the reason we've got here is because the temple door is shut. The origin of the river that gives life is from the very throne of God. But then when you move on to the function of the river... It will show us a little bit more of that life, what will happen. And first of all, quite obviously, the river will give life from verse 6 as the paragraph changes. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Sea of Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it enters into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live there wherever the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish because this water flows from there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. See the picture? Here's the river from the throne of God. It's a tiny stream, but it becomes a river in which there are all the fish of the Mediterranean, the Great Sea. That's the picture. And the message that goes with it is wherever the river goes... There will be life. The fish will live. Now, for those in Ezekiel's day, that was a fantastic thing to hear. Because there had been the equivalent of spiritual death. Manifest in desperate desperation. You, you, you know the, the, the feeling you get when you, when you see something of a desperate situation. It might be a global tragedy. 
It might be as we see the refugees at the moment. And it's a desperate situation. But, But that was what it was like for Israel. Years before, when Ezekiel was lying outside his house, and people were saying, well, that's Ezekiel, it's a bit strange, don't worry, we're okay. And he's laying against the siege module, and then he's cutting his hair with a sword, and he's burning some on the building, and he's chopping the rest up around the city, and a bit's in his garments, and even that gets burned, and there's a tiny bit left. And they thought, this is weird, and then the city falls, and that's exactly what happened. It was three years of famine, absolute disaster in the city, while being besieged. And thousands had already been deported. When they break into the city, they chase people and a number of them are just killed. Leading people who are still there were just rounded up and massacred. And if you've gone and visited the city or you've taken photographs, it'd be like some of those places in Syria where the people have gone and the buildings have gone and people have been walking away in desperation. We've got nothing. It was no different. The scale of this was just the same. There was spiritual death manifest very clearly in physical disaster. Famine, plague, the land taken over. And now there's a promise of life. And we've got to remember that when God makes a promise from his throne, his fundamental promise is he's a bringer of life from death. He's a bringer of life from death. Remember what Jesus said. In uh, John 5, 24, when he said, I tell you the truth, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, that's this God, has eternal life. He has passed over from death to life. God is in the business of bringing life from death. And it's certain because God promised it. I'm going back. Here's the throne. The temple door is shut. And that life which he gives, secondly, he will also sustain, as we read on in verse 10. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Engleam. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Now this picture isn't just an apocalyptic dream. It's also a fulfillment of all the covenant promises. The promises of covenant blessings that run right throughout the Old Testament. And here in Ezekiel, God has made it clear that when he is going to come back and fulfill his promises, when he's going to resurrect and reunite his people, when he's going to give them a new heart and give them the spirit then there will be signs of covenant blessing. If you have time to read through Ezekiel in its entirety, you'll see this. But let me just pick out one part. Don't worry about turning to this. I'll just read some of it to you. But this is part of the restoration promise. This is chapter 36. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries, bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in a land I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine on you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field. 
so you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. You see, the picture is that when God gives a new heart and a new spirit, when he resurrects and reunites, when he deals with impurities, brings back a people, it's manifest in covenant blessings, crops that don't fail and corn that grows. It's the biblical picture that in restoration, the life that's given from death to life is an abundant life. Is a life where the other nations look and say, that's amazing. Now, people love to quote uh, John 10, don't they? I've come that they may have life and life in all its fullness. Now, that needs unpacking, but it is true. He has come to bring covenant blessings. He's come to bring everything in abundance. So life, yes, life, but also, as it were, sustaining life, abundant life. And thirdly, that aspect of life from here is a, is a transformatory life. He'll bring healing. End of the passage, second half of verse 12. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. So do you see what this picture is? Strange picture of river, origin and function. It is from the throne of God, but it's secure because the door of the renewed temple is shut. And as it flows out, it gives life where there was death. That life will be abundant life. It will be covenant blessing life. Even producing salt for saltiness as well as fruit. And in the abundance of fruits, the leaves will also bring healing. So there is total perfection. There's no more disease. There's no more death. There are no more hospitals. There's no more disaster. A picture of utter perfection. It is fantastic. But maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just fantasy. Maybe it's not reality at all. Because on the one hand, although God made these promises, they cannot be revoked. The door is shut. And yet on the other hand, in the experience of God's people in the Old Testament, it didn't happen. Just as we've seen. Have you ever wondered what those at, in Ezra's and Nehemiah's time knew? You see, this is going back to the land and rebuilding the city, city wall and the temple. That is after this truth of Ezekiel, which they knew. They must have known. And yet, in this section here, where you have very clear indication of a new set of dimensions for a new temple, they do not go to the architect and say, could you draw up the plans according to uh, what we see in Ezekiel uh, 40-48? to 48? In fact, when you look at what's in Ezekiel 40-48 to 48 about a new temple, there's not sufficient information to make it. You've got some of the dimensions, but not all. Why didn't they? Why didn't they go back to the land and expect to build this temple? Why didn't they go and renew a different kind of priesthood, which they were expected to do as well? They didn't. Well, it's either the case they didn't believe it, didn't know it, or they believe it and knew it, but knew it was something much, much more. In fact, when you read the instructions of what the people held on to, the reason we're given is so they might understand that they were sinful. A reminder of the need for something more. So under an Ezra and Nehemiah, they didn't assume that Ezekiel 40 to 48 was a picture of what would happen physically. Interesting. Likewise, when you read the post-exilic prophets, you don't see through them, do you, a resurrected or a reunited people. There's little evidence of a cleansed heart or the presence of the Spirit 
And when they rebuild the temple, not according to the plans given here, there's no river that flows from it, sustaining life. Oh, you'd have a field day, wouldn't you, in the theological colleges up and down the land. Oh, we can't trust God and his word. And certainly if you and I had been on, uh, planned to go on holiday and we saved up and we got this fantastic uh, brochure of holiday, it's absolutely tremendous. Just the kind of place we want to be. Uh, perfect in every way. Uh, brilliant hotel, great pool, by the beach, great food, great photographs. Fantastic price. And you buy a ticket. And you go there and you discover, actually, it's a pretty bad hotel. In fact, the hotel's not been finished at all. And there's no swimming pool. And there is sea, but it's 50 miles away. And the food, well, actually, it's not good at all. And you just feel con, don't you? You don't go back and say, I'm really going to hang on to this brochure because this brochure means a lot to me. Because it doesn't bear with reality. You'd throw it away and you'd be angry. Well, the brochure said this, but in reality it wasn't this. And yet for them, the brochure said one thing. Reality was something different, but they held onto it. Why? They held onto it because they knew it was something bigger. You see, just as they didn't quite believe that God would judge them till he did, and they suddenly realized that his words are real. So beyond judgment... Though they don't experience the fullness of what he's promised, they know his words are real. They remained in the Bible from the 6th century onwards with promises as rock solid for the future as the judgment of God was rock solid in their experience. Even though the heart had not yet been changed and the spirit had not yet been given. These words pointed beyond, beyond their return to the land to the ultimate purposes of God for you and for me. Secure, because in the picture, the door is shut. God rules on his throne, in his people, life in its abundance, and life one day that will be perfect. So it's no surprise these words stayed. They're from God. And it's no surprise that when the Lord Jesus came along, everything that was there, he fulfilled. He's the new tabernacle. He's the new temple. He's the place where you see the glory of God manifest. He is the one who said, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. And John explains, by this he meant his spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Hadn't come yet, they promised in Ezekiel. And when it came, something of this picture will be seen in those who are in Christ. As streams of living water flow. And in him is life. And life in its fullness. In him we move from death to life. And through him we have the certainty of this picture of renewal one day. It's no surprise, is it, that it is these words or this picture which is taken up in the book of Revelation. Wonderful truth in picture language. It has to be because no one's yet experienced it. And it's got to tell timeless truth through the generations. But turn briefly with a finger in Ezekiel to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 verse 22. In this vision of a renewed city, we've had the promise of a renewed temple. But we read in Revelation 21 verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city. Why not? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
And what will happen? From the center of the temple, from the throne. Well, look at chapter 22 of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They'll not need the lamp of light of lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever. You see, the promise of Ezekiel, which they held on to but knew were beyond, find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. But like them, we don't yet experience the fullness of what we have in Christ. We may feel weak. We may face pressures. We may discover that we're drinking muddied water and eating pasture that has been trampled on. It may be that there are false shepherds around and that life can be tough and we can feel like aliens and strangers exiled in a foreign land. But here is the promise and here is security made by God with total certainty and for us with even greater certainty than they had going back to the land. Because through Jesus the heart is changed and through Jesus the spirit is given. And in him, sin, the real problem, is dealt with. And it means these strange, distant chapters are for you and me. They are the promise of God for us. What he has said he will do, he will do it because he has said it. I, 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 I. There will be a place of perfection. There will be the fullness of covenant blessings where the fullness of the life in Christ will be experienced. There will be healing where there is no mourning or bitterness or pain. There will be a time where we don't need hospitals because there's no disease and we don't need undertakers because there is no death and there is no sin. And you see, all the purposes of God point there. Have you ever realized that? The new heaven and new earth is not Eden restored. It is much more than that because in Eden you could sin and in Eden Satan was there. But in the new heaven and the new earth there is no sin and there is no Satan. That was always the purposes of God. And we understand them more clearly when we see people who didn't believe the promises of God and how God speaks the majestic, powerful God in judgment and rescue to promise that renewal. And wonderfully in Revelation, the fruit tree picking up this picture also harks back to the garden. And the tree of life miraculously becomes that which appears on both sides of the river. And it brings fruit every month, but healing for the nations. And what did God promise to a world, nations that were in rebellion? I will make a nation and I'll bless you. And through you, I will bring blessings to the nations. I will sort out the problem. And I'll do it through my shepherd king. And this will be the result. And you see, that's why we need these words, isn't it? That's why we need these words. 
Because until that day when we're called home or the Lord Jesus returns, we've got to keep going to the end. And how are you going to keep going to the end? You're going to keep going to the end if you know this God. Majestic and holy and powerful. Who speaks? Will we listen to him? Who takes sin and our sin seriously and does judge. But who himself promised to do what we could never do through a Davidic king. Bring that rescue. And through him he will establish his throne. The door will be shut. There will be renewal. Through the Lord Jesus one day. Yes, we have the spirit as we wait. Guaranteeing. Yes, we have many blessings in the midst of the battles. But ultimately, we need to keep listening to his voice. Now his judgment is dealt with on the cross, in the king who rules. And that through his rescue, we will one day be renewed. And won't it be a great day? Won't it be a great day when we're around the throne, singing praise to the Lamb in all eternity? And you look back and you say, there were great things. CCM was a great church. But it was sometimes very hard. And sometimes I wanted to give up. And sometimes I looked around me and I thought, the world is more powerful. I feel like a scattered, exiled alien. You look back and speak of those times where the water was muddy and the pasture was trampled. And you battled with your own sin and knowing your own heart. But you'll praise this God forever in eternity. Because on the throne, he sits with the Lamb. And won't it be wonderful? And we'll say, God, thank you that you gave us the book of Ezekiel because it helped me get ready for now. Shall we pray? Father, as you kept your people going then by your word, your truth, as we have that truth made more certain because of the Lord Jesus, please help us to keep going to know sins forgiven, to know new life in your spirit, but to know that in the pain and the mess and the muddle, we look forward with rock-solid certainty to your promise for that future where we'll see you face to face and praise our shepherd king, the lamb who was slain, our Lord Jesus. Father, may these words given all those years ago but spoken to us as your people today be deep in our hearts and shape our minds. And keep us always ready to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that we have. Amen.